moment we can go back to the theater, go back to the cinema, go back to even a football game, and we will, we will run. For me, this period is a period of uh, reappreciation of these things which uh, we have taken for granted. Let's talk about the money and support side. At least 2% of this recovery funding from the EU should be spent on culture. This could be or should be a European moment. Welcome to Gogorin, the Eurozine podcast with authors and editors of cultural journals from throughout Europe and beyond. Eurozine is an online magazine and a network of 90 partners. Journals, magazines and associates from Belarus to Belgium, from Norway to Bulgaria, publishing literature and analyzing politics, reflecting on culture and bringing diverse voices to a joint conversation. I am editor-in-chief Reka Kingapop and today I'm talking to Andre Wilkins, director of the European Cultural Foundation about recovery funds and forced digitization, budget lines and bank holidays, and a little bit of his own pandemic experience as a migratory cultural producer. Welcome, Andre. Let's start in Mediastres. How do you see the pandemic affecting the cultural sector a year into this? How is culture coping and how will it recover from COVID-19, 20 and 21? We really do live in extraordinary times. We have not, most of us, and actually all of us, have not experienced something like that. And it continues to be hard, and I believe um, we haven't really totally understood and comprehended um, the extent of the change we are going through. And that applies to, to all sectors and, and to all people, whether they um, work in politics and culture and economics and schooling. It's uh, tricky, it's interesting, it's challenging and probably really shifting times. So what we have also experienced in these times is how things we, um, we have known as sort of ordinary and uh, everyday can disappear almost overnight. And um, how painful that is, that there uh, is something, the access to a public space, to an open public space, uh, traveling to other countries, but even to other regions in your own country. Going to the theater, going to the football field, meeting friends, relatives, um, all these things which seem so ordinary before um, are now becoming so so special, and I see that also as an opportunity as we go forward, this uh, reappreciation of seemingly ordinary things. And many of these uh, ordinary things uh, have something to do with, with culture. The impact of the digitalization has been uh, quite immense. It would have been much harder if we hadn't had the digital means we have in this pandemic. But at the same time, we also realize that it cannot cover everything and that it is only a tool in difficult times. But the moment we can go to use other means of communication and um, of experience, we will try to go back to them, um, as I said, uh, theater, um, an open public space and so on. 
So in that context, uh, I think we we appreciate or I think we should we appreciate the role culture and cultural exchange has played in that time in this uh, difficult time. I mean, how would we have come through this period without the access even in a digital way to uh, to culture and cultural exchange? But we we appreciate also that the moment we can go back to the theater, go back to the cinema, go back to even a football game, and we will we will run. Yeah, so on that note, I, I just want to make one comment that really strikes me as you speak to this problem, and that is also outside of institutional culture, how much of a migratory species we are. That is something that I experience myself and I would assume that many of us who have furbished our lives around permanent motion like commuting from one country to another for work or uh, living outside of our home realm and then visiting back for me it feels like I'm struggling to even maintain a portion of my identity because I can't visit my hometown but also a portion of my identity that has to do with my professional identity because I can't go to Vienna either. So I'm stationed in mm. Budapest with my family, um, my workplace, the European offices in Vienna, and then my hometown is the third place. And I feel like sort of suspended, right? Yeah. You're a migratory specimen too. Uh, <laughs> do you feel this? Do you feel this sort of stuckness? Yes and no. Of course. I mean, I've, I, I grew up in, in East Germany and at that time, my sort of biggest dream was uh, to explore the world and go outside, to go behind the Berlin Wall, the, the Iron Curtain. And the moment I could, I did. And, and you know, I lived in five, six uh, now uh, different European countries and worked and traveled. And, and this is really part of my sense of life is is really uh, really important for me and i i wouldn't uh, do without it and of course now i'm i'm stuck in, in one place i mean i'm in between amsterdam and and berlin so in amsterdam where our office is in berlin where also my my family is and for the moment i make do um, with sort of digital ways of traveling but I, I see it as as temporary, as an as, as a helping tool in difficult times. So and uh, I try to make the best of it as, as much as I can. There are possibilities, but I know, and I don't have to remind myself because um, that is so clear to me that this two-dimensional way of exchange is is only really a poor second to the real thing, to the real physical and the, the analog and the, the traveling part and the experiencing part, including with a coffee and and um, and uh, an after-work uh, drink and um, being in a pub together or in a, in a bar. That That is my life and not only mine, of course. And uh, I think for me, this period is a period of uh, re-appreciation of these things which uh, we have taken for granted. Yeah, that that really speaks to my experience too. I think it's sort of, there's a certain level of connection, especially in cultural exchange, that happens non-verbally, 
mm-hmm. that is very hard to replicate. Although I do appreciate mm-hmm. that you're, you seem to be much more patient than most of us <laughs> with this crisis. You say, let's talk about the money. So, okay, let's talk about the money. What kind of specific plans would you see appropriate? How would you go about this? And maybe also, how do you explain the significance of culture and the financing of culture to technocrats who think that culture is sort of, you know, just a feather in the hat, some kind of vanity that you can abandon in times of crisis? Like we've seen with so many austerity measures that they would spend from theaters to public libraries and more. That would be more or less the first place to start to save on. How do you approach this? How do you talk to these people and what do you propose? After a a very chaotic beginning, the responses were very national. In the second phase, governments uh, at European level got their act together and created um, a response which was uh, quite significant, 750 billion recovery plan. And I I think that's a very good thing. But even in the process, um, the role of culture and um, some uh, also uh, put this together with a creative industry, which I wouldn't necessarily um, do um, in in, in general. But uh, let's say the the role of of culture and cultural institutions and networks didn't really play any role in this. I think uh, everyone who's who feels uh, passionate about uh, the importance of the cultural sector in society, but also during and after a crisis, should try to make uh, or be alert and to be concerned that this is not just becoming a program where, you know, I don't know, um, motorways and, and um, even if they are green or, or other um, infrastructures are built and that we don't invest in this sector, in, in this infrastructure, in the cultural infrastructure, which has been so vital during this period and is vital in any case. So for the moment, we, we don't see that in the discussion um, and that's why we, together with other partners, call for a cultural deal for Europe, which when we talk about money, but as I said, it's not only about money, but when we talk about money, we say at least 2% of this recovery funding from the EU should be spent on culture. I think that's not enough. It's actually uh, not enough at all, but is much more than currently is planned by most countries uh, some countries, I think uh, eight countries already, which um, have said that they put culture into um, the recovery funding, also up to uh, the 2%. But most countries in the EU, and um, maybe we can also talk about the countries outside, um, have not done that. And uh, I think there's, a, there's still a long way to go because, as I said, it's not only about money, but in the end, it's also about money. Well, I think this argument about culture not being only about money is usually sort of a clap back to Mm -hmm. demands for financing demands. But after all, cultural production either can be afforded by those who have all the free time. So if basically, if we don't fund culture, then only those will end up as cultural practitioners who can afford. To, mm-hmm. to not make a living, right? So that's a huge privilege mm-hmm. that we would want to 
well, I guess most of us benevolent people would want to avoid excluding people from this. Since this is for a more sort of general stance, we do know now that only air traffic suffered the same economic impact as the cultural and creative sectors in this crisis. It's above 30% of drop in turnover in 2020. In some sectors, it's up to 90%. That's horrifying. And it's instantly felt we are a year into this crisis, and it is pretty sure that it will last longer. What does culture do for a society that we need so badly in this crisis? Culture is the main driving force for, for, being, for being a human, as a, as a thinking uh, being. Um, so for me, that's uh, pretty central. I know that is, is not seen by everyone uh, like that. I, I wouldn't so much compare the cultural sector to other sectors in terms of industry or economic sectors. Um, especially that since they are also, um, and, and that, in that sense, the aviation sector is an interesting comparison, especially as they, they may be transitory. So um, certain sectors are transitory, um, even the, the, whole, um, the whole mobility sector, but uh, also good examples. People always compare to the automotive sector. There are more people working in the cultural sector than the automotive sector. Is that a good comparison? Um, should we, um, because the automotive sector may uh, change quite a lot over the next few years, the same as for the aviation sector, but the cultural sector I think um, will be um, a sector, or is a sector, or is it actually a sector, but it is, is um, a part of our life which has always been there and will always be there and is possibly, probably, rather um, expanding than, um, than shrinking like the aviation sector. The aviation sector and the automotive sector, they will really will have to change quite a lot, and uh, they do change. Um, the aviation sector probably in next year or the year after will not be uh, the same. Uh, will, will, will be a huge transition. And that's for me the question, will the cultural sector in Europe go through a similar transition or will have to go through a similar transition that, like the aviation sector? I don't think so. But at the same time, it will also need to go to a certain transition. Only when we look at the extent of cultural mobility and cultural exchange in terms of, of carbon emission and the whole, will that come back in the same way and should it come back in the same way? So that's why I'm thinking, yes, um, we should do whatever it takes uh, as Europeans, as policymakers, as cultural managers, as, as artists, uh, should do as much as possible, whatever it takes to create the economic and uh, financial means that the sector will survive and be better after that crisis. But there will also be changes within the sector to make that possible, which um, are only in secondary terms financial um, issues. I accept your criticism about the comparison between the aviation sector and culture. Although I do have to say that on a personal experience level, I would always choose a theater hall 
instead of an airport. And we're not even talking about bathrooms yet, which is a much more decided problem. But to talk about transition, there is now a big and very quickly forced transition, a forced digitization that the cultural sector has really tried its luck with. And there's still a lot of innovation going on, and it's probably going to remain the same. It has both opened up certain avenues for people who wouldn't have been able to reach them, events not being sort of forced online, and has also excluded masses, like huge masses, not only those who don't have internet access, although we're talking about a significant portion of the population who doesn't have sufficient internet access and access to tools, but also certain things just seem to be immune to digitization. So why is it that we cannot simply take culture and just chuck it over the internet and just press play? You know, in the initial days, there was this talk about people being stuck at home and streaming content, and now this is going to revolutionize everything. How much does it actually revolutionize? How much doesn't it? And what kind of effects do you think it has on the transformation that climate change is calling for? It's the one trillion euro question. Uh, I think digitalization, uh, digital tools have helped. I mean, I don't even want to um, imagine how hard it would have been how much harder it would have been without being able to things at home which uh, resembled as sort of to or which made up to a certain extent to the loss of public space we all experienced and loss of traveling and also delivery of certain things and, and so on. But it has shown also the limitations, as you have said, I mean, otherwise, you wouldn't have this this real urge to get out and go back to the theater, to the cinema, to the uh, restaurant. So I, I think it's, it has the two dimensions. But one thing it has done is it has shown in a, in a crash test what already is possible in a digital way, even if it doesn't uh, replicate the analog experience totally or maybe to- or maybe differently but certain things you may find you will do in a digital way in the future um, and, and, and particularly I think what things which will replace some of the travel you will, I, I think and that's a good thing for the carbon put- footprint um, I hope also you can't be sure because um, you know the decrease in, in CO2 emissions uh, last year seemed to have been made up already to a certain extent in the second part of 2020 and now in 21 so we can't be totally sure but if we agree that digitization helps but it isn't a silver bullet. Mm-hmm. Is there a silver bullet? Is there something that you would suggest doing right now for decision makers on the European level, on national levels, beyond the EU? Is there like one piece of advice that you say, do it right now? But the first thing which needs to be done now, I think in, in terms of European decision makers, and and national decision makers to get this vaccination campaign rolling because that is holding back uh, Europe and that makes 
it's creating um, distrust and discomfort um, with the current policymakers in Europe. You had, um, you know, some good experience, some less good experience last year in dealing with the corona crisis. But now that we see sort of the light at the end of the tunnel and we have the tools with the vaccination, uh, you know, some of them also being um, developed and produced in rapid speed in Europe. And, and now we can't get it organized. And that is really yes. annoying people. And so we need to get that in order because then all the other question, questions seem a bit theoretical. You know, I mean, yeah. this now has priority. And if we don't get that done, people will turn off Europe um, and say, look, I mean, you know, even Britain after Brexit, the US and um, after Trump, um, Israel, even Serbia and, and so on, they all manage that. Um, and, and we in Europe, um, we don't get that. Um, done, despite uh, what we always say that we work together in solidarity and so on and so on, we don't get it done. And um, if we don't get this organized, people will disconnect or might disconnect from this uh, European idea. So I think that's for me the first thing and that has priority. But I, I think we have all the ingredients, including the vaccinations, they, they are there and they are produced. It's a, much of it is actually an organizational thing that is not a silver bullet, but that has priority. Um, but in the context of we have a, a recovery plan, we have recovery funding, there will be lots to do after the vaccination campaign, after the health pandemic, there are lots of problems. And I think we can only deal with them in a good way if we do this also as part of a, a sort of a cultural transition. A lot of us talk about the green transition and I think that's very important. It's also a cultural transition and therefore it, this needs support and um, it also needs to make sure that the people working in this sector, uh, they, they have the, the means to survive and continue to do their work. And if they don't, um, we, we might even face a kind of a cultural recession in Europe, which has, will have a much bigger impact than, than, than um, health or economic uh, recessions can have. I do have to say that I'm genuinely worried for the smallest independent and thus most vulnerable sector. This stemming from from the small independent theater companies to mm. extracurricular programs and you're basically arguing that the eu has to prove itself the champion it has long advocated for itself as right yes. so this is the time yep. to show this yep. strength and all in all it is a conglomeration of states that's unprecedented in the world. So everything is a given yeah. for this to happen. I believe this European cooperation, European Union thing um, is one of the most innovative uh, political things developed in the last centuries. And in that sense, I, I was thinking at the beginning of the pandemic, as you said, um, this could be or should be a European moment where people believe now Europe has really shown to me why we have to work together and that we can defeat something like this through European cooperation. So I think this is why it is so important. And if we don't get that right, then this whole European 
thing really is in danger. So we, we should really do whatever we can to make it a, a European moment because there's more at stake than a recovery fund or, you know, just getting by. I would still like to ask you what the European Culture Foundation is up to or what are your plans that you would maybe want to announce and what, what should people be watching out for? We launched last year a fund, the Culture of Solidarity Fund, to support cross-border cultural initiatives in times of um, lockdown, in times of closed borders, in times of closed public spaces, and also in times when most uh, European countries focused very much on the national because even the, all, most of the rescue plans or rescue of the recovery and emergency plans in the first few months, they were all national. Europe was not to be seen. Indeed. So uh, that was uh, partly a message that uh, more is needed and, and also a tool. We, we funded um, now around 70 projects in, in this and uh, we go on. We had just opened a new call for this Culture of Solidarity Fund, which uh, focuses on the digital public space and the infodemic um, we're currently also seeing in terms of fake news and um, you know, competing narratives. So that is this, we um, see this as a flexible tool from our side to get through the pandemic. And also we see it actually as, as an example of what the European Union could be and should be doing with this a culture deal for Europe. They are an interesting um, program to watch out is our uh, program of creating, promoting and supporting uh, European pavilions across uh, Europe. There is a, if you go to our website, there is also a podcast, which I recommend, not only because I have to, but uh, because I, it, it's very good, uh, which uh, is the idea behind that is that um, we were wondering at some point, why are there only national pavilions at the Venice Biennale? Why isn't there a European pavilion? And while we were at it, we said, shouldn't there be more than one a pavilion in Venice? And, and now we, we want to support and promote a whole network of European pavilions um, everywhere where people want to do them in Venice, in Palermo, uh, in Torino, in Amsterdam, in Lund, and so on and so on. So that's an exciting, and this is all about imagine uh, Europe not only after the pandemic, but in general. What what do you expect from it, and how can it be done? So that's uh, very exciting. Then you mentioned the library project. There are sixty five thousand libraries in Europe. And if you think um, the, about the potential of that, there's a huge infrastructure in, in big towns, in small towns, in villages, even mobile libraries. If you could connect them in an intelligent way, for me, that is the real uh, social network of Europe. So we are in the process um, working with library at the moment seven, but I mean, we're, of course, we'll scale this up, but you have to start somewhere to develop this potential of a, of a European social network uh, through the existing library infrastructure. And we feel very privileged and happy that we have so engaged a partner 
as uh, in the libraries from different uh, parts, uh, east, uh, north, uh, south, middle, um, to work with us and, 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 and make that happen. We don't have all the answers, but we are, we're working on it. So there's also some information on our website and who is part of that. Then I mentioned the call we have out now at the moment on the European public space and uh, infodemic. So there's uh, lots um, we're doing in this uh, sphere. We're working um, with a digital foundation in Amsterdam, De Waag, and also with a, with a foundation in Italy um, on how can we make the European public space, a real functioning and safe uh, public space, which is currently dominated mainly by digital service platforms like, you know, um, Facebook and, and Google and others, uh, TikTok and so on. But there is no European player, but there's also no clear vision of what a, a digital European public space could be like and um, how do we get there. So we are investing in this through cooperation, through calls or proposals and ideas, and you will see more um, coming. These are some teasers from our work, but everything you find on our website. And now we're also gearing up towards the 9th of May. That's uh, Europe Day. Schumann Day, actually, initially, and Robert Schumann was one of the founders of the European Cultural Foundation. 1954 and uh, we know there's lots of stuff in Europe which is imperfect and needs reform and uh, criticizing including a big part of the history of Europe and also our colonial past and so on but one day per year um, and that's for us the 9th of May you can also celebrate that there's something quite good about this European thing and our cooperation and there's much more we can do together in the future so we want to make europe day a day of celebrating europe um, and then the next day we can criticize each other again and be critical of what we do and develop new things but one day per year can also be a celebratory day so i wholeheartedly agree in, <laughs> i think that's the Once healthy ratio <laughs> yeah actually i also think for every nation state has a national holiday and it's a holiday actually people usually it's free yeah you, you yes. don't have to go to work which is why we remember them yeah and exactly and there's nothing for europe so no wonder that people still love the nation state more than europe because at least they get one free day out of it so let's address that balance indeed well thank you so much andre we will link to all of these mentioned programs in the show notes and of course to the website of the European Cultural Foundation and uh, with that we bid the listeners farewell okay thank you and thank uh, you. have a good Friday you too you've been listening to Gogarin the Eurozine podcast with authors and editors from our network of cultural journals from throughout Europe and beyond. You can find articles published in collaboration with the European Culture Foundation by authors like Ecete Merkuran, Kenan Malik, Antonia Letinic and more in Eurozine. Please find the link in the show notes. Do subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify or wherever you listen and leave a review so more people can find us. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter, so you'll always know 
What's Worth Thinking About. I'm Editor-in-Chief Reka Kingapop, and I hope you've enjoyed the program.